Hey, good morning. I'm, uh, I'm Brian, if we haven't met. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, I get the joy and privilege of serving as one of the pastors in the life of this church. Uh, most, morning, most mornings you'll see me hanging out with the crew in North Andover right down the road, but this morning I get to hang out with you, and I'm excited to do that. So uh, before we uh, jump in, would you pray with me? Father, Jesus told his disciples that apart from me, you can do nothing. I feel that in the depth of my soul this morning, and I pray in your goodness and in your grace and by your spirit, you would come, and God, you would pour into me and you would pour into us, Lord, so that you'd be able to pour out through us, Lord, as we depart from this place and seek to live as the everyday people of God, Lord, because we cannot do it apart from you. Lord, I pray you come and be good and you would speak truth. You give us eyes to see and ears to hear exactly what your son is saying this morning to us. It's my prayer. Pray you hear it and answer it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, hey, we're talking holiness today. Yay! Woohoo! Holiness! Yeah! Uh, if, if, uh, holiness. So I bring up that word holiness, and there could be a number of like different things that like pop up in your head when you like you could cringe, you know. Uh, so if I say the word holiness to you, maybe your mind automatically goes to uh, a list of do's and don'ts, right? Like, don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that, eat this, don't eat that, eat over here, don't eat over there, drink this, don't drink that, hang out with those people, don't hang out with those people, right? So holiness could be the list of do's and don'ts. Um, maybe you think of uh, smug, uptight faces when the word holiness kind of gets dropped on you. You think of like the Christian 5-0, what I mean by that is the Christian police. It's a group of people, right? And they're just staring at you, and they're watching you, looking for any way to just remind you of how unholy you are. Holier than art thou, maybe a term you're familiar with. So maybe you think Christian police, smug, uptight faces, ready to judge you for the ways you're not holy. Uh, the third one maybe could be uh, separation. You think holiness, and you think uh, separation. And what I mean by separation, there's some truth to that. There's some whole, when it means by separation, we start to think, oh, I need to separate myself from all of the evil out there. Whole separation means Christian bubble, uh, counterculture in the sense that I never interact with anything out in the world. So if I'm going to go to a coffee shop, I'm going to go to a Christian coffee shop. If I'm going to go to the movies, I'm going to go see a Christian movie. If I'm going to listen to some good music, it's only going to be... Christian music. Hey, I'm going to go hang out with my friends. My Christian friends, that is. Right? And so on and so forth. So there, there could be other things that you could add to that list when we say holy. The word holiness kind of comes about, okay? Uh, J.C. Ryle, he's a 19th century uh, Anglican bishop slash theologian. He defines what holiness is not in his book, Holiness. He says, a man can go great lengths and yet never reach true holiness. It's not knowledge. It's not a great profession. It's not doing many things. It's not a zeal of certain religious matters. It's not morality and outward respect of conduct. It's not taking pleasure in hearing preachers or sermons. It's not keeping company with godly people. These things alone are not holiness. A man may have any one of them and yet never see the Lord. Ryle goes on and he says this. He says, true holiness we surely ought to remember does not consist merely of inward sensations and impressions. It is much more than tears and sighs 
and bodily excitement and a quickened pulse and a passionate feeling of attachment to our favorite preachers or our favorite religious party and a readiness to quarrel with everyone who does not agree with us. Ryle says this is what holiness is. It is something of the image of Christ, which can be seen and observed by others in our private life, in our habits, and in our character. We get to this transition point in the letter, verse 13, where Peter drops, therefore. Now, he's just spent the first 12 verses laying down uh, indicatives. What I mean by that is facts about who you are, facts about who we are. He's, He's shaping our identity before he even gets into any imperative stuff and telling you, here's how you should live. And this is what he says as way of reminder. He says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Like, what it means by that is, God didn't just look and see throughout all time and say, hey, these people here are going to be good people, so I decide to choose them. I think they're going to be good people, so I'm going to include them. No, it's according to his grace and his mercy and his pure, unadulterated love for you to call you his son or his daughter that he chose you, period. You are chosen by the Father. You're sanctified by the Spirit. You are being made more like Jesus as you try to walk this thing out in everyday life. And it all happens because of Jesus' work on your behalf, his blood that was shed on your behalf. You also have this future inheritance that's undefiled, it's unfading, it's never ever going to perish. Like all the other inheritances that we chase after in the world that seem to go, all the trinkets and toys that we love, those things go away. But this inheritance ain't going anywhere. I just said ain't, didn't I? You guys are going to kill me in Andover for that. It's all right. I get one mulligan here, right? All right. You have this future inheritance. So as you go through trials and as you go through tribulations, which you are, you're going to face trials and you're going to face difficulties and hardships. There's going to be things that try to attack you and try to drag you away from the purpose through which God's called you to. Don't think for one second that God's left you, but that God's with you through it. And he's testing the genuineness of your faith. And he wants to prove your faith in Jesus and he wants to make you more like Jesus through it. So hang in there. We essentially are grace of God people is what Peter drops on us. And now he says, therefore. And listen, the reason he does this is because I think it's really simple, right? But yet so hard for us to grasp. It's the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. It's the gospel and only the gospel that will be the fuel to set the church in motion. And when I say the church, I don't mean just the church as the organization and the programs we do. I mean the people of God as they live their life in everyday life. And it's only going to be the gospel that's the fuel for us to be on the move and to sustain us as we try to live as the people of God in everyday life. It's only the gospel. And so that's what Peter drops on him. And now we move into the rest of the letter. That's all about our action, our life response as we live as the people of God in response to the grace of God. And the first big work that Peter is going to hit on us, drop on us this morning is this. It's our big idea. Grace-driven hope fuels our everyday holiness. Grace-driven hope fuels our everyday holiness. And there's four things our boy Peter wants to press on us. The first one's this, as I catch my breath. Chill out, Brian. Still got like 20 minutes to go, right? First point's this. Everyday grace of God people need to get their heads in the game. Everyday grace of God people need to get their heads in the game. Peter says, 
in the first part of verse 13, he says, uh, having your minds alert, or another version says, uh, preparing your minds for action. Now, I had a coach in high school, my high school hockey coach. He was uh, better suited for a military drill instructor. Uh, and so anytime our team or any of, any of us uh, had any type of undisciplined play, um, you would hear about it. He's also this very intimidating looking guy. Like he's like one of these guys like you see on TV, like, like he, he looks like he lived in the wilderness for 20 years and the way he survived was by killing squirrels and like just hunting with his hands and doing, you know, like he, he just he had that appearance, very intimidating. But if, but if you messed up, like I often did, uh, you would hear from it. You'd hear something to the effect of like this. Paige, where's your head, boy? Paige, you better get your head in the game, boy. You better get your head in the game or you'll be sitting right here with me. That was, it's, it's still just, ooh. <laughs> Freaks me out as I say that to you. I'm not about to take that approach, but here's what I do get to do with you. I get to, with a great big pastoral heart of love, say to myself first and to you that we do need to get our heads in the game. Don't let this Sunday, please, don't let this Sunday be the Sunday that you drift off into daydreaming as I preach, right? It's not 3 o'clock yet, right? <laughs> it's not 3 o'clock yet, right? We'll get there, but it's not 3. It's only 11.25 right now. 10, is that 11.25? Yeah, 11.25, right? Don't let your mind drift off. Don't let your mind escape you right now. Peter's going to tell us, prepare your minds, which means gird up the loins of your mind, which, which really meant back in the day, men would wear these long robes, and as they were getting ready to go off into battle, they would have to, uh, before they started running, they'd have to literally gird up the loin, gird up the robe, the loins, and tuck it into the belt. I almost wore one of my wife's like long things to kind of demonstrate for you, <laughs> but I figured that would ruin any clout that I have as a pastor in the life of this church, so I spared you of that, and I, I would have ruined my wife's dress probably too, so... Um, but this is what they would have had to do. Gird up the loins of their robes and tuck it into their belt. And so here it is. Grace-driven believers, they get ready to go to work by preparing their minds, preparing our minds for holy living. And he also says this is our second point. He says, everyday grace of God people need to sober up. Verse 13, he says, and being sober-minded. This digs a little bit deeper into the preparing our minds. And it's not just a reference like, hey, don't go get drunk on some life-altering substance that will mess with your brain and mess with your reality. He's not necessarily getting after that, but this literally hones in on, hey, keep your mind from wandering into laziness. Keep your mind from wandering into carelessness. Keep your mind from wandering into the depths of sin, which will drag you away. Keep your mind from going to that place. And this sober-mindedness is a big thing for Peter. He's going to say later on in chapter 4, he's going to say, hey, the end of all things is at hand. Be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. And he's going to say it again at the end of the letter. In regards to the devil, he's going to say, be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, lurks around like a lion looking to devour your soul. And it's true. This sober-mindedness is needed because we do have an enemy of the soul that lurks around and is ready to pounce on you. And oftentimes it comes in through the mind, first and foremost, is the battle of the mind is where it starts. So be sober-minded. Let's call this gospel sobriety, okay? Gospel sobriety. There's a killer to gospel sobriety. 
One of the ways that sobriety, our gospel sobriety is killed is when we start to care for cultural idols. But what I mean by that is we start to care for the things of the world or what the world promotes and cares about. Jesus spoke to this in Mark 4. He's telling the parable of the sower to his disciples. And he says this. He says, there are going to be some who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So we could say it like this. Um, if gospel sobriety is killed, um, it kills any potential for Jesus to produce fruit in the life of an individual or a church. So what does that look like for me as a pastor? If for one second I start to use the pastoring thing, the ministry thing, as a way to make some money or to pocket some change and build up a retirement or to make a name for myself or a reputation for myself so that I get some glory and some accolade and some fame, then I kill gospel sobriety and there's no potential for Jesus to produce fruit in my life because I'm caring more about what the world promotes, which is store up for myself, care about my own needs, build up my own reputation. You feel me? What about in the life of the church? What would that look like in the life of the church? It's when the church starts caring about money versus missions. Right? It's when the church starts caring about programs and productivity rather than people. Because, hey, listen, ministry is people. I'm learning this as a young pastor. Ministry is people, people first. It's not programs, and it's not productivity, and it's not getting butts in the seat, if I could just say that. It's people and caring and loving for people. So when the church messes that up, well, we could say, uh, hey, it's uh, you know, any other thing. You know, competency over character, then we fall off the wagon of gospel sobriety as a church. John says it like this in 1 John, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. J.C. Ryle says this again, a holy man or woman will follow after spiritual mindedness. He will endeavor to set his affections entirely on the things above and to hold things on earth with a very loose hand. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven and to pass through this world like a stranger and pilgrim traveling to his home. He will enter into something of King David's feeling where David said, my soul follows hard after you. You are my portion, God. Grace-driven hope fuels this type of sobriety. And so here it is. We need to sober up, clear, clear our minds, and get ready for action. And here's what Peter tells us to do. It's the third point. Every day, grace of God people need to set their hope on Jesus' actions on their behalf. That's the first action step in the life of the he says this in verse 13, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here it is, action step one. Set a very strong and confident hope on the work of Jesus on your behalf and on my behalf. And let me remind you of what Jesus has done. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that you and I could never, ever live. 
And he goes to the cross as a substitute, and he dies the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins. And he takes our sins upon him. And we sang about this beautiful exchange. He exchanges and takes on our sin and our unrighteousness. And in exchange, he gives to us this undeserved grace and mercy where we receive his life and his status and his holiness and his perfection and his blamelessness now before God. And he does that as our substitute on the cross. And he rises again from the grave. It's what we call the resurrection. And he secures our salvation, defeating sin, death, hell, and Satan. Basically telling sin, death, hell, and Satan, you can't hold me down or anybody else who believes in my name and my work on their behalf. And he rises from the grave and he ascends to the right hand of the Father where even right now he lives to make intercession for his people. And he's coming again. He's coming again to bring fulfillment to the promise that he indeed is making all things new. All things are going to go back to the way God intended for them to be. Unbroken, no sin, no tears, no frustration, no disunity, no disharmony, no fighting, no death, no evil, no hatred. I long for that day. This is our hope. And those believing the gospel, this is their first action step, friends. Before we get into any other spiritual discipline of praying and reading scripture, which are all important, he says, first, believe the gospel. Can I just be honest with you? I need to hear this day after day. I need to hear this moment after moment. You want to know why? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I feel it in the depth of my soul every single day that I am prone to wander. And so are you. And this is why you and I need to hear this week after week, Sunday after Sunday, day after day, over and over and over again. My heart and my prayer is that you would long for anybody who stands behind this pulpit, that they would feed you the gospel week after week, no matter what, because it's that important. It's that important. Like, it's kind of like that favorite song of yours. I don't know what your favorite song is these days, right? But it's like putting it on repeat, that thing you listen to at the gym right around your car or whatever, you put it on repeat, and you're just like, ah, oh, I listened to, like, uh, Billy Joel, like, 17 times today. It's awesome. You, get, you, you know? It's like, hey, man, put that gospel jam on again and keep it on repeat, because I need to hear that from my soul. That's the tune. That's the jam that my soul needs to hear over and over and over and over and over again. Do you know the second thing that can kill gospel sobriety, though? It's moralism. Spiritual moralism. And this is what moralism says. If I just take the things of the Bible and do what they tell me to do, the imperatives, do this, don't do that, don't eat here, don't do this, don't eat that, don't hang out here, don't hang out with these people, whatever. If I just do those, then I can earn my way to God. I will warrant God's favor and I will warrant God's love and I will earn that future inheritance and acceptance that I have coming to me because of the life that I live. But can I just tell you something? It's bogus. That is bogus. All of our efforts, all of our deeds, no matter how good they are, no matter how wonderful they are, Isaiah says they're like pollution. They're a stench apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, anything we attempt to do is pollution. This is why you and I, you know what this world needs more than anything? It needs hope in Jesus. 
Do you know what you and I as Christians need to be reminded of? I need, before I start to live my life, because I will default back into, hey, look what I've done. Look what I've done, God. This is why even Christians need to be reminded of the gospel over and over and over again, because our default mode is to go back to religion. This is what I've done. Here's what I'm doing. Look how many Sunday services I attended. Look how much money I've given. That makes me holy, doesn't it? No. All of our good deeds, apart from Jesus, are a stench before God. Listen, if you're not a Christian, you're here. Man, my plea for you is to, to consider Jesus and set your hope upon Jesus. This world don't have it. There's absolutely no hope outside of Jesus. So, listen, we need to call moralism's bluff at the poker table, and we need to go all in with Jesus. We need to go all in with Jesus. The fourth thing is this. Everyday grace of God people need to live in freedom as children of God. Live in the freedom of the children of God. And as you do this, remember two things, okay? Verses 14 and 16 talk about, Peter says, it says, obedient children. So the first thing you need to remember as you attempt to live in freedom as children of God is that our relationship with God is that of father and child. Father and child. Now listen, we get that jacked up a lot. Right? Depending on what your fatherhood situation was when you grew up or what you've been taught in specific uh, religious context about or what culture has said or what you've read about who got it. Some people say God's a tyrant. No, he's a judge. Writing the judge. He's, he's, the, he's the sheriff of the Christian 5-0. Right? But first and foremost, God is our father. And we are his children. And he loves his children. It's not a boss-employee relationship. It's not a, a dictator and law-abiding citizen type of relationship. But Peter says, obedient children. He refers to them as children. This is who you are. This is your identity, children. And you know what children long to do? They long to be like their dads. Children long to be like their dads. Um, the portrait that's out there, uh, so he wasn't my biological dad, but uh, David Midwood, who was a pastor in the life of this church, um, was a mentor, but he was more than a mentor to me. He was like a spiritual dad to me in a lot of ways. And you know what I've prayed time and time and time and time again? As I've sat with him and as I spent time with him and as I consider his life and I write about him and I ponder his life, there's a guy that was so lost in the reality of his acceptance as a son before God and his love, the love that God had on him as a son. And that shaped him as a pastor. And my prayer has been, man, if I could do this 25 years from now, my hope and prayer is I can look back upon my time after I pick my heart, head up, after plowing hard for Jesus in pastoral ministry. And my only prayer is that I, can, I hope that I can be a quarter of what that guy was. Because I long to be like my dad, essentially. Because I know that he longed to be like his dad, his perfect dad, who loved him unconditionally and perfectly and so wonderfully. He was lost in that. Children long to be like their dads. We also need to remember that we were not set free to live in slavery again. Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Another word could be cravings. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance cravings. And so the question is this, what used to drive you before Jesus, if you believe in Jesus? What used to drive you? What was the thing that motivated you? What was the thing that kept you up at night? What drives you right now? What's the thing that puts that thing in motion for you, your whole life in motion for you? I remember for me, 
former craving was drugs. So for me, it was, it was running to drugs to find escape and freedom and temporary joy so that I wouldn't have to deal with reality. That was an old craving for me. Peter says, don't go back, Brian. Don't go back there. For some of you men, I'm going to speak honestly. For some of you men, it could be porn. Thinking that I can go find some pleasure and excitement and some joy and experience something thrilling by what I look at on the internet or on my phone. Don't go back. Don't go back. For some of you guys, it could be money or greed. This desire or overworking to try and justify your existence in this world. You're trying to somehow prove that you belong here. You're trying to find your identity through your work and so, or, or through money. Right? So you're, you're storing up and storing up and storing up and storing up, but that doesn't do it either. Don't go back, Peter says. Don't go back to that former way of life. Maybe for, for some people, it could be looks for women. It could be looks. It could be that next step. It could be the, the, the five millionth video that's come out on like how to like shape your body or do something, you know, all these exercises, you know, so and so. I could do one. I could make one. <laughs> you wouldn't buy it, trust me. But you long for your husband's affections. You long for your husband to notice you. You long for you to be shaped and, and, and informed by the image of what culture portrays that women should look like. Don't go back there. Don't go back to your life before Jesus. Why does Peter say this? Why do I need to hear this? Why do I believe you need to hear this this morning? I think Peter knew that he even, with people who find life in Jesus... He knew that even as you try to walk and do life with Jesus, there were still going to be the temptations. There were still going to be the cravings. There were still going to be the, the times, the desires that would remain to some degree that would look to gain control over your life and my life at times. Because here's the reality. We've been set free by Jesus from the power of sin, but there's still the presence of sin. We live in this already but not yet stage of life right now. And the reality is we're still going to be tempted by those things. Those things are still going to call out to you, Brian, Brian, Brian. Come find freedom here. Come find allegiance right here with me. Come find happiness right here. You can. You can escape for a little bit. Don't deal with that. Don't deal. Come over here. You'll be okay over here. So do you know what the third thing that kills gospel sobriety is? The last thing. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Cheap grace. What do I mean by that? Bonhoeffer said it's, uh, it's grace without discipleship. Uh, it's grace without a sacrifice. It's grace without a cross. It's grace without Jesus. Basically, uh, cheap grace um, takes uh, grace for granted. Thinking, hey, Jesus is my boy. Jesus got me. Hey, you're right, preacher man. Yo, uh, I can't do anything on my own to earn it. Jesus did it for me. He paid it all for me. So, hey, man, now I've got a hunting license to shoot whatever I want, wherever I want, and whenever I want. Right? Because Jesus is my boy. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus has got me. I'm in with Jesus. But can I just say this? That's just as bogus as moralism. It's just as bogus as moralism. Because cheap grace thinks it's all about being free. But do you know what the Christian life is not defined by? It's not defined by just having liberty to do whatever I want and indulge the sinful nature wherever I want, whenever I want, however I want. But it is defined by a fight. It's defined by a fight that engages this battle against the sinful cravings that try to latch onto you and steal your allegiance, the worship of your heart, the things that look to drag you away 
from truth, the truth of Jesus. So it's engaging in this fight. Paul says this in chapter 5 in Galatians. And those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you know what a mark of holiness is in the life of the Christian? What it isn't is uh, nailing it all the time, perfection. That's not holiness. You know what holiness is? Ongoing repentance, which, which I mean, what I mean by that, if you're not repentance, meaning I turn away from those old cravings and I'm fighting to turn towards Jesus and follow Jesus in every aspect of my life. That's a mark of ongoing holiness. I'm not nailing it, but I'm repenting. Why do we keep after it? He says, he who called you, he who is holy, called you to be holy. So be holy as I'm holy. Here's where I want to draw your attention as we close this morning, and it's this. I want you to take great hope in this. Because sometimes you can hear holy, and you can hear me or someone talking about be holy, strive to be holy, and you can think, oh, I'm not doing it. I can't get there. And you're tempted to just despair and give up and just maybe float into some moralism. Hey, I go to church, and I'm, I'm good. I'll be okay. I'm fine with that. But God has called you to be holy. He has cut you out, literally set you apart for a specific purpose, a unique purpose in this world. But you can think of holiness and go, oh, I just cannot get there. I cannot live that type of life. I want you to remember something. Peter says this little verse, and he says, he who called you. While you and I were wallowing away in the swamp of our sin, God in his grace awakened you. And in his mercy, he sought after you when you weren't seeking after him. And he came to say, I want to be your dad, and I want to set you I want to set my love and affection upon you. I want to call you to be my child. I want to walk with you through this life. And I will never, ever, ever leave you nor forsake you. And nothing will ever separate you from my love. Nothing in this world. And now we are free and restored to live in God's image in light of that. Because he called you in grace. It's amazing. My prayer is that the Spirit would help us to live these lives that are holy. Here's my application and we're done. First one's this. It's real simple but it's so hard. Fix your hope on Jesus, right? Beyond anything, beyond me telling you like, hey, read your Bible 16 times a day and, and pray continually and, you know, go whatever else, give tons of money away. Fix your hope on Jesus. Fix your hope on Jesus because like I said earlier, our hope, our, our tendency is gonna be to revert back to other ways or, or, or place our hope on other things. So we need to fix our hope on Jesus. And the second one is pray for one. I know the church has this pray for six thing, and that's great, and if you're doing that, continue to do it, but I want to encourage you maybe just pray for one specific person, right? As we've been saying, uh, we've been doing this with our North Andover crew, um, we're called to live our everyday life on everyday mission. It's church gathered and it's church scattered, and we're focusing on the church scattered. I want to encourage you. There's someone in your workplace. There's someone in your neighborhood. There's someone in your family. There's someone maybe who serves you coffee at Starbucks. There's a gas station, whoever, that's someone that God's placed in your life that you see. I want to encourage you to pray, pray for one, and here's why. Do you know what is going to draw people to Jesus, I believe, in this context now? It's not our attractive programs. It's not our attractive services. It's not our attractive paint. It's not our great music. It's not going to be any of that. Those things are good and necessary, but do you know what attracts people to Jesus? It's going to be our attractive lives that we live for Jesus in the everyday stuff of life, what they see in and through our everyday life. It's attractive lives that are attracted, attracting people to draw near and wonder and be compelled about Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to not only pray for one, but pray for yourself, that our lives together would be attractive to Jesus. FCC, I've taken a ton of time. Let's revel 
anchor ourselves in the grace of God as we go and do this. Amen?